Hello, and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm joined, as always, by Greg. Hello. And today we will be reviewing Lanterns. But before that, let's talk about what we've been playing. Yeah, let's. So I know you talked about having a chance to play X-Wing recently, and it sounded like a pretty exciting game. How did that go? Yeah, we actually got to play two games of X-Wing. One of them was like a warm-up because we haven't played in uh, probably like six or seven months. Yeah, and X-Wing is really a game that you can't go into cold. Yeah, so we had a short warm-up where we each played with, I think it was 25 points per person. Uh, set up a team, just played like that. Uh, it was pretty good. And then we went into a bigger uh, game. Actually, probably in terms of scale, the biggest game that I've played so far. Mm-hmm. Just because we had three people on each side, and uh, each person had 50 points to spend. Okay. Uh, so 150 points per side. And we also used two of the 3x3 three three mats side by side. So we so, played it on a physically larger surface than I've played before. Sure, lots of room to maneuver and you know adapt new strategies. Exactly, and we set up on the long sides facing each other, so you weren't like going across the expanse right. uh, of space forever. Spending three turns just getting to each other. Exactly. So it went really well. I really enjoyed it. It was great to get back into it, and of course both sides made some mistakes, and there were some new people playing, but it was nice to actually get some new people in on the game. And it was just nice to see like the new other people coming in and playing. And we got to play with the Empire versus the Rebels, so we didn't use any of the Scum and Villainy people, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, I was on the Empire side, which is actually not something that I normally go for. A lot of times I'm in Star Wars games playing as the Rebels, mm-hmm. but in this case I really like one certain ship, which is the TIE Phantom. Okay. Which is one of the most powerful ships in the game because it can cloak and disappear from radar and just like be like, oh, uh, whenever I'm cloaked, I get an extra two dice to roll in defense. Yeah, that and, sounds uh, like a pretty useful feature. Yeah, and and it also has one of the highest attacks out of just about any of the uh, any of the, f- the smaller fighters. So you roll a whole four attack dice, and then you pair that with a few other abilities like the advanced cloaking mechanism, which after you attack, you get to do cloaking as a free action. So if you have a high pilot skill, you move, you go in, you attack, and then if no one else has a higher pilot skill, you attack and cloak right away. So you're always cloaked whenever someone attacks you. Wow. All right. So it's quite powerful. And then that seems like it would lend itself to sort of a larger scale map as well, because you can sort of get those hit and run tactics. Yep. It might be difficult on a, on a smaller map otherwise. Yeah, exactly. It was the kind of thing where... I just, when I counted it today, I killed four out of the five ships that were on the other team Wow! with my fighter, and I had only one ship. Of course, I upgraded it because it was out of it, so, you know, it was fully, like, everything done. Yeah. But, yeah, that's not to say that the other ships were useless at all. They softened everyone up. I just came in the back, in the back and was, like, cleaning up hmm. everyone. So it was just, like, I went through, uh, a lot of them were already damaged, and it was just, like, Boom, destroy that one, destroy that one, finish that one off, finish that one off. And there were a few cases that it was it was funny because one of our other friends, Jeremy, he just turned around his B-wing to go and like go after me. And it was, I had a choice between attacking uh, the A-wing, which was right in front of me and was pretty vulnerable, mm-hmm. or attacking the B-wing, which I knew was about to attack me. I went and attacked a B-Wing and like, just barely killed it right before it shot at me. So I was like, 
Yes. Nice. Very clutch. Yeah, it, was, it was the kind of thing where most of the game I didn't get shot at a single time because everything was dead by the time it got to there. All right. I mean, I guess the best defense is a good offense. So exactly. Way to, uh, it was way to stick to tradition. It, it was good. It was good. Uh, of course, we did end up losing that game. Well, I mean, you were the Empire. Of course you lost. Yeah, and it was, of course, we lost because of Luke Skywalker. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't you can't blame yourself. He's got the Force, and that's, you know, basically cheating. So I mean, it wasn't the Force. It was fucking R2-D2. Which is also basically cheating. He's been everywhere in the galaxy, according to canon, or near canon. So, like... Exactly. He's so just, He just retconned a victory in for them. Pretty much, pretty much. It was that kind of thing. It was, uh, as the, one of the other players said, you know, this this was just uh, plot immunity for Luke Skywalker. He just wasn't going to be dying this turn. Exactly, so, exactly. You know. Couldn't, couldn't uh, penetrate his plot armor. So. Yeah, and one of the cool things about the game when we played this time was... Uh, I got to see one of the newer ships in battle, and that was the Ewing. And it had a cool mechanic that you actually changed the physical layout of the ship. Just really? like the the Ewing in in the movies, where it's, you know, during like cruising speed, you have it uh, with the flaps forward, so it looks like a U, but then they fold backwards when it's like attacking kind of thing. Sure. And so you actually do that to the Ewing, and it has slightly different stats uh, one way or the other. Interesting. All right. And it's the only ship that actually I've seen has the maneuver of pretty much turn in one space. Like, without moving, it could do a 180 degree turn. Just a straight up U-turn. Yeah, just like, you know, stops and then, boom, 180 degrees and, like, starts attacking the other side. All right. Hyper maneuverability. I can dig it. Yeah, it was was pretty cool, especially for a big ship, because it was one of the larger models, not not one of the small ones. Oh, that's even more impressive then. Yeah, it was was quite impressive. So I really liked the model itself, and it looked like it was a pretty useful ship for for the most part. Yeah, sounds like. So yeah, that's mostly what I've been playing, because that... That game took a long time. <laughs> like 300 points in like on that, such a space, there was a lot of just running around and like trying to get behind the other person, which was really cool because you got to actually do a lot of the tactics that you wouldn't normally get to do on a smaller point or a smaller map. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I unfortunately haven't had a chance to actually play a lot. I went to a wedding this weekend and had some friends around, and we. We ended up watching TV rather than playing board games, which, you know, some would call a wasted weekend, but it was fun anyway. But I am actually really, really excited. I purchased a new board game. Um, I actually purchased it back around New Year's, but it was a it's a digital download type situation, mm-hmm. and there was some problems with delivery. But I emailed the the creator, and she got back to me and said like, "Oh yeah, sorry, I had just switched systems." So I finally got this game. It's called A Quiet Year, and I'm really, really excited for it. It's basically the the players, between two and four players, take the, the role of a community of survivors in a post-apocalyptic situation. But rather than a game like uh, Robinson Crusoe or Dead of Winter, those other sort of survival-based cooperative games, you don't play individual survivors. Instead, you sort of represent the bird's-eye view, as the rulebook calls it, of the survivors. So you, you kind of represent their communications, their overall feelings, their wants and needs, rather than having individual named survivors under your control. And it makes it a much more narrative experience rather than a gameplay thing. So like I said, the game is digital download, which means when you acquire it, it's just a rule book. 
the rulebook will tell you what you need. There are technically cards that go along with it, and you can purchase those as well. But it's designed to be played with 52 cards, so you can just play with a regular deck of playing cards. And then there's a legend in the back that says, okay, this is what the Two of Diamonds means. This is what the Ace of Spades means, so on and so forth. And then you need, you know, pencil and eraser and a single sheet of paper and some dice. And it's that's all there is to it. So as you play through the game, you're constantly evolving and constantly drawing uh, on the sheet of paper, which actually represents the map of your settlement. So you say, all right, we've got some, you know, a copse of trees over here, and we've got an abandoned mine shaft over here. And as you draw or, you know, as you discover and resolve issues with these things, you'll elaborate on them on the map. You'll you'll draw them or you'll erase them as you chop down the trees, for example, or put dots next to them each time you sort of deal with an event there. But I'm really, really excited to play this game because it seems unlike almost any game I've ever seen. The only thing I can sort of compare it to is Fiasco, mm -hmm. where rather than cooperatively trying to work together to beat the game, you're really just collaborating on creating a narrative experience. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for that reason, I'm, I'm being pretty cautious with the players that I invite to play with me. You know, you got to play with people that you trust because otherwise you could, you know, if you play with sort of a traditional min-maxer type board gamer, they'll just abuse the mechanics of the system to say, okay, well, you know, we have a scarcity of food or fresh water. Great. I use the discover something new ability to discover a cache of food or water at the edge of the map, as opposed to using that to discover something new that's intended to spark conversation and spark conflict and, and you know, advance the narrative. But we're probably going to play that this weekend, and I'm really, really looking forward to it. So I'll be sure to report back on that next week. I'm looking forward to hearing how it works, because that seems extremely nebulous in the rules and, and how it works. So we'll have to see. It looks like a very interesting combination between actual like role-playing games and board games so we'll see uh, another game i'm gonna recommend then is microscope microscope yes okay. it is an rpg in which you are building a timeline of an empire or something like that and as you go through like you can go as deep into it as as you want and also as far out as you want yeah so it's, okay <laughs> it's also the similar kind of feel yeah, that definitely sounds like something, especially if it turns out that I enjoy this, mm -hmm. like something I would uh, I would investigate. So, yeah. yeah, I'll keep an eye out for that one. Cool. Well, there you have it. That's what we've been playing this past week. Now it's time to celebrate a successful harvest by lighting up our review of Lanterns. So Lanterns is a very interesting game about pretty much creating the amazing lantern display that would happen traditionally after the harvest festival so the game itself is first of all very nicely illustrated oh yeah no the the lanterns themselves are gorgeous the tiles on which they appear are quite lovely illustrated um colorful different shapes it's just it's just really nice to look at agreed and it's also a very simple game it is what you need to do is you need to get sets of lanterns and you get those by placing tiles and tiles each have four sections on them each of them facing a different direction and multiples of these can be the same color or they can all be different colors it all depends on the tile and you take it you place the tile and the basic is that whatever direction from that tile is facing you you get that colored lantern 
And that goes for everyone. So when you place a tile, everybody gets a lander. Right. And this is one of the really important strategic elements is that you have to be concerned about, all right, I'm going to place this tile and what am I going to get from that? But also what's my opponent going to get? Yep. And then you have the extra layer on that when you place the tiles. If you match a color that's already on there, so if I have a purple side and I match it to another purple one, I will also get the purple lantern and whichever one is facing me. So you can get up to, in the best case scenario, <laughs> five lanterns. Conceivably, though, that would be almost impossible to pull off. It would be almost impossible to pull off, but it is something that could conceivably happen. More likely, you're going to get two, possibly three lanterns each turn. And you place lanterns, you get those, and put them into your tableau. And then you try to create sets. So you have a few different types of sets that you can do. You can get seven lanterns, each of a different color. That is the most valuable type of set. Right, but also the least efficient, because yes. you're converting the most number of cards into the most points, but also the fewest points per card. Yes. And then you have other ones like the four of a kind, which is, I think, the least number of uh, cards to the most number of points. And then lastly, you have the three pairs. And so the game has a bit of a balance between placing the different tiles, getting the lanterns, and then figuring out like what you're going for and what types of sets you really want to do and what you can see other people going for and what types of sets that they want to do. So you really have to worry about everyone around the table at, at every, every time you place the tile. Exactly, because while the set that you acquire for turning in seven of one color might be objectively the highest value, the tiles that represent the sets that you've scored already decrease in value as more and more of them are taken. So the first one of those is worth 10, which is more than any other tile in the game. But the second one is worth 9, which is the same as the first three pair tiles. So which one it's best for you to take actually will vary over the course of the game. And you'll see people trying to adapt their strategies on the fly as they say, okay, somebody else snatched up the first seven card set. I'm going to pivot now and try to go for the four of a kind. Now, the way that you can sort of enable that, in addition to playing lake tiles and acquiring lanterns, you have another thing that you can do optionally once per turn, is that you can spend festival tokens, I believe, favor tokens. Favor tokens. They're known as. Uh, you spend two favor tokens and one lantern card in order to acquire a lantern card of any other color. Any other color that is available. True. There is a limited supply of each color, and that scales with the number of players in the game. So in a two-player game, you're going to have five of each color, scaling up all the way to, I believe, eight of each color in a four-player game. But So that's a very important, and another strategic element, you can uh, make sure that there's a scarcity of a particular color so that somebody can't acquire what they want to. When you spend favor tokens and a card to acquire another card, you can sort of expand your options. Say you have three lake tiles in your hand, which is what you'll consistently have, and none of them have green on them. So there's no way that you can end up with a green tile after your turn, but you have favor tokens, and you can trade those out to acquire a green one. Now, how do you acquire favor tokens? That's done by matching colors on lake tiles with special features called platforms. 
and platforms are represented by different features. They can be everything from a flower to fish to a panda, those sorts of things. They're just extra things on those tiles. And if you match them, you get a favor token. Importantly, you can get multiple favor tokens if you match, say, at a corner where you match two different tiles with platforms on them. So you're always wanting to be on the lookout for the most efficient, most powerful play that you can come up with. Yes, exactly. One other thing about the actual like trading in of the tiles for your the honor sets and all that kind of stuff is that the order in your turn really does matter. So the first thing that you may do on your turn is trade your lanterns for or with the favor tokens for a different lantern. And you may do that once per turn. Then you may dedicate, which is what you do to get the sets. So you dedicate and you spend whatever lanterns you have and get the points. And then the last thing you do on your turn is place the tile. So you can't place a tile and use whatever you get from that tile for the current turn. It's actually going to be the next round that you can use it. So that comes into a very interesting strategic mindset of the game mm -hmm. because you have to look at what the other players are actually going to be doing in that turn so if you are let's say looking at the other person who is about to get four of a kind and you know that the next four of a kind is going to be one point less but then you're equally between a four of a kind and a three pair and the three pairs you don't see anyone else doing you would want to pivot towards the three pairs because the, uh, they could get the four of a kind before before you could get it. So the three pair would be the more logical or the more efficient route. Right. There's lots of ways in which this game actually forces you to think ahead. So you have to think ahead in terms of, you know, I'm not going to be able to dedicate with the lanterns that I acquire this turn until my next turn, but also, you know, who's going to acquire the sets that I'm aiming for because the the lake tiles that you have that you'll be playing on each of your turns, those are hidden in your hand. But the lanterns that you have, those are actually out in front of you. So everybody can see, oh, this person is obviously going for, you know, the seven different colors. Or this person is going for the four of a kind. Mm -hmm. And they'll be, if they're, you know, strategic about it, they'll be attempting to maximize their points while also stopping whatever strategy it is that you've got going on. So it's, it's a game that definitely rewards and really encourages forward thinking and thinking several turns ahead. Very chess-like, as your roommate mm -hmm. pointed out. Yeah, and it's one of the things that I really do enjoy about the game is because you actually do have to have that turn planned in advance. So you're playing the tile now, but you're using it for two turns from now and also trying to block someone else. And then there's the whole with the keeping people from getting the lanterns by depleting the supply, which is also very much a strategic decision. So if Greg had, for example, four of the five green lanterns, he could trade them in for points at that point. But if I needed the pair of greens, he might not want to. He might want to you know, go for something different and keep that green out of my hands so that then he could keep me from getting more points. So there's just a lot of different strategic depth to a game that has such simple rules. Another thing, though, that you have to be careful of is that you only have a hand limit of 12 cards. So 
you can't just collect every single lantern. And you also can only dedicate one set per turn. So if you have multiple sets, you have to know how many turns are left in the game in order to be able to dedicate everything that you want to do. Right. It's definitely something you have to plan very carefully. You know, even if you are thinking very far ahead, you have to be reasonable about what you can actually manage to accomplish, given that you can only exchange once per turn, you can only dedicate once per turn, and you only lay one lake tile per turn. So there's kind of a balance that you have to strike between what you want to do and what's feasible to do. Mm -hmm. The game continues until you run out of lake tiles. And essentially each of you, like I said, is going to have three in your hand. And there's going to be a communal pool of lake tiles that scales based on the number of players. After you play a lake tile, you draw one. And then eventually there will be no more to draw. The game doesn't end yet. Instead, each player continues going around until they have no more lake tiles in their hand. So this game runs completely dry before the end of it. And then after all players are out of lake tiles in their hand, each person gets one more essentially half round in which they get to attempt a dedication and then points are scored. So even though there are a finite number of sets and dedications that can be scored, that isn't an end mechanic. And obviously, this isn't something that's going to come up in a two-player game, mm -hmm. but in a four-player game where you have lots of people competing and the number of sets hasn't doubled, it's increased but not doubled, you're going to have a much greater likelihood of running out of a particular type of set. So that's even another sort of strategic concern that you have to keep in mind as you're playing through and focusing on what you want to do. Exactly. And... The game does have a mechanic that if you do run out of the sets, you have the generic sets, which are worth the least points. I've seen it only happen in the four-player games when you run out of sets and then you have to take the generic tiles instead. True, so but even those that. are finite. Even those are finite. I have not seen yet a game that has run out of them, but I think it is definitely possible. Right. So all of that said, no game is perfect, as we like to say, but with this particular game... We had to struggle uh, really hard to come up with ways that we thought it was imperfect. The things that we came up with were really fairly nitpicky. Yeah, I mean, the game itself is definitely geared towards a much lighter feel. Like, the game is extremely simple, the rules are pretty easy, but one of the things that I noticed is there were a few little like trick rules that were a little bit difficult to immediately grasp. One of which is the order in which you play. It makes sense. It's, this is definitely the correct game mechanic. It's just a little bit hard to grasp that you mm -hmm. first exchange, then dedicate, and then play a tile. Because we're so used to having the immediate reaction of when we play something, we immediately get the benefit. That having that be the last part of our turn and having to wait the entire next round is something that people have to get used to when starting to play this game. Agreed. And one of the other things that I noticed was just a small nitpick about how the rules were laid out, and one rule in particular, which is that 12-card hand limit, it's a bit hidden. So I've seen games in which they did not fully read the rules, that one person had almost every single lantern card, and then they were just, you know, Pretty much monopolizing the game. And mm -hmm. I walked over there, I'm like, you can only have 12 cards in your hand. That, oh, we didn't see that rule. 
Right. Yeah. They really sort of buried the lead on that rule. Um, and, you know, that's just the way that the, the rules are written. The layout of them uh, could could probably be improved. One of the other things that we sort of came up with in, in thinking about ways that the game could perhaps be better, it's very much a game that has different tiers of experience and skill. And if you're playing across those tiers, if you have an experienced player playing against a new player, the experienced player is almost always going to win because I feel like there are games in which they're very high skill, and because of that, the difference between experienced and non-experienced players is actually lower because it's obvious that the things that you need to do to be good require a lot of forethought. Whereas with a game like this, experienced players are going to have strategies that are below the surface layer of strategies that might be visible to a new player. So they'll just play circles around that new player who's saying, okay, how can I maximize the number of lantern cards that I get from each play, as opposed to thinking to themselves, okay, how can I best maximize my lake tile in order to deny things to my opponent? So... For that reason, there's a little bit of an asymmetry there that can be improved upon, but again, these are really nitpicky things, and they honestly have to do more with conscious choices about the design of the game than any inherent flaws. So honestly, it's it's a very impressive game in how elegantly it's designed, I think. Exactly. There aren't too many rules, and the rules that there are all make sense, and when you actually read them and figure out exactly how the game is played, those rules have to be the way that they are in order for the game to work correctly. It's it's like an engineer made the game. They cut out every single thing that they could <laughs> in order to make the game as streamlined as possible. And I think that they succeeded pretty well. I would agree. So now that we've talked about how it basically has no flaws, what are you going to give it for a rating? I'm going to say buy it. This is a game that is... Very simple, and though probably not for everyone, if you have people that you're trying to get into playing board games, even like younger kids, anything like that, this is a good game to have because it's very quick, it's very easy, it has that higher level strategy that can keep some of the more advanced players interested while still being able to keep the new players very interested because the mechanics of just matching the colors to each other is extremely easy, simple, and fun. The illustration is nice, and it's just overall a really nice feeling game. I definitely agree. I'm also gonna go with a buy it. You know, for all the reasons that we've talked about, it's a very visually appealing game. It's a very simple game to pick up, but a difficult game to master. And it's a game that has a lot of replayability. The lake tiles that you're playing with each game won't be the same because there are more of them than you'll be using even in a four-player game. So there's some consistent variability there. And for all of these reasons, I've actually talked myself into giving this a top shelf designation. So wow, there you go. Lanterns, officially Greg's second top shelf game that we've reviewed. There we go. That is quite a designation. So yes, to go alongside Brewcrafters in the Hall of Glory. Well, there it is. So there you have it. That's what we think. Now let's compare this game to a few others. Right. I think for a lot of reasons, this game and Splendor have a lot of overlap. The mechanics involving the efficiency of scoring, where you have the things that are worth the most points, but require a greater diversity 
are less efficient, whereas the things that are the most efficient require possessing a strong majority of a single color, which is very difficult to acquire. That's very Splendor-esque, as well as the fact that the available resources, in this case lantern cards, in that case gems, scale with the number of players in the game. Very Splendor-esque. So if you like sort of the scarcity management aspects of Splendor, definitely check out lanterns. Yeah, I would agree, and I would actually say that this is in my opinion, much better than Splendor. There's not a lot that isn't much better than Splendor, in your opinion. But the reason for it is that there's a lot more interaction. Because True. when you're placing the lanterns, you are affecting everybody. So you have to be part of that game. You can't watch TV and play lanterns at the same time. It's just not going to work. Absolutely. The game that I will compare this to is actually Scoville. Because I feel like Scoville is almost a more advanced version of lanterns. Between the different types of color combinations, like the way that you're moving, that you have to take into account where other people are moving, how they're moving, and, and all that, plus the different management of, the different, of your resources, the timing of how you do certain things, like the growing and the, and the harvesting and getting the different shields in Scoville, that is all similar to some of the mechanics in Lanterns. And also the fact that the shields, like, they get lower in value the more you take them, just like the actual, like, the honor tiles in lanterns. So if you like lanterns and want something a bit more advanced, check out Scoville. And if you think someone would like Scoville but want, you want to start them off with something a little bit more simple, go for lanterns. Absolutely, that's a great point. And then finally, we think that Five Tribes is fairly similar in a lot of ways, specifically because when you're taking your turn, you have to be looking out for a balance between what plays are going to maximize my benefit versus what plays are going to deny opportunities to my opponents. And if, for example, you have something that's going to give you huge amounts of points, but also going to set up a big play, you have to decide whether that's worth the risk of your opponent noticing that and being able to take that play. So finding that strategic balance, very similar between the two games. Obviously, the core mechanic is different, but if you like that forward-thinking, strategic element of Five Tribes, definitely check out Lanterns. And there you have it. That's our review of Lanterns. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed our review of Lanterns. We continue to work on the production of our Century in Review video, so be on the lookout for that on our YouTube channel coming in the next couple of weeks. Also, WashingCon tickets are on sale now, so head over to WashingCon.com to pick those up. They've got some great one-day tickets for Sunday, as well as children's prices, and lots of different options for people to check it out. And, finally, Dragon Brew, which some of you may remember from our interview with its designer, Daniel, last week, will be ending its Kickstarter on Friday, March 3rd. That's tomorrow. So if you haven't backed it already, head over there and make sure you contribute because it's an amazing game and well worth picking up. Join us next week when we'll be reviewing Dead of Winter and its standalone expansion, Dead of Winter, The Long Night. <laughs>